I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hey, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Um, my name is Pastor Mike Winger. Actually, my name is Mike Winger. My name is not Pastor. Um, you could just call me Mike. <laughs> but uh, this is, we're approaching Halloween's coming, right? We're, and, and that, a lot of people don't know, is the anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. Because that was the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. And I don't plan on giving you a history lesson, but it seemed like a nice opportunity as, as this day approaches to talk about Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura was like a, a real central theme in the Reformation. The Reformation was basically and my perspective on it as, a, as, as someone who's not a Catholic would be to say the Reformation was basically the church saying, hey, we want what the Bible teaches and we think there's been a lot of traditions of men and authorities, foreign authorities trying to be foisted upon us and we want to go right back to scripture, right back to the authority. And that's what sola scriptura is. It means only the Bible. So I'm going to give you guys a brief definition and defense brief, not even the thorough defense, a brief defense for people who are new to the idea of sola scriptura and you want to understand how it works. And this is, of course, why when we do Q&A, I'm asking, what does the Bible teach about this stuff? Not what does Mike teach with his authority, but what does scripture say? So what does sola scriptura mean? Sola scriptura, in a nutshell, it is saying that scripture, scripture, we have these, these books in the Bible, we call scripture, these writings that are from God, divinely inspired, that this alone, scripture alone, is the final authority for Christians on what they believe and how they live. So their beliefs and their practices, faith and practice is a fancy way to put it. The scripture alone is the final authority on those things. That's the simple idea of scripture alone. So this, this kind of rejects other authorities that might be coming in saying, no, 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 I'm equal with scripture or I'm, I'm higher than scripture. E either one of those. And we say, ah, no, no, when it comes to Christian faith and practice, it's the Bible that we look to. So I need to already start. Now this, this would seem, it would seem sensical and common sense. If you just started with the Bible, if all you had was the Bible and you didn't know anybody or anything, and you read it cover to cover and you understood it at least decently well, you would not be thinking somewhere out there, there's this authoritative structure out there that has to tell me what I'm supposed to believe. And I can't just take this text and the revealed word of God. You just wouldn't naturally come up with this belief. Yet the belief is there. Um, and so we're going to talk about that today in the Tuesday live stream. And then we'll go to your guys' questions for some discussion, interaction back and forth. And I'll start by saying this. I don't hate Catholics. I'm not a Catholic basher. I love Catholics. I have Catholic friends. Um, and I, I just want to say this is about truth. And we can disagree uh, on, on issues of truth, important issues of truth, without being hateful of individuals and accusing people of that or responding as though it's personal when it's about truth is, is unhelpful. So uh, let's move forward. Um, what Sola Scriptura means, right? Bible alone is the final authority for Christian faith and practice. What it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean is that the Bible has every bit of knowledge there is in the universe. Okay, it doesn't mean that, right? Like I'm not thinking, you know, Sola Scriptura means that if, if my car breaks down, I, I got to go to the Bible to figure out how to fix it. Like this is, no, no, you can go to a mechanic or a manual from a mechanic. You know, this is nothing to do with Sola Scriptura. Um, it also doesn't mean that the church has no authority. The local church has authority, real authority. And the idea that you can bring people, as it says in scripture, to the local church, the congregation for discipline, that is a biblical concept. And so the church does have actual authority. There is authority amongst leaders in the body of Christ. And, and the body of Christ as a, as a unit, as a community, has some authority. That is absolutely true. The church is, the, is, is also responsible for disseminating the truth of Christ throughout the world. That doesn't mean we have the authority of Christ in the world, though. We're we just responsible for giving out the truth of Christ. So we're that pillar and ground of truth. That means it's coming from the church to the world, but that doesn't give the church the authority of Jesus um, in, in declaring new words from the Lord and saying, we agree, therefore this new thing is now true. We just don't have that, that capability. Uh, we also need the church. Sola Scriptura is not saying me and my Bible alone. I, I forget the church. I don't need the body of Christ. That's not saying that, right? Because I need the body of Christ around me. And, and God has placed in the body uh, others to bless me and me to bless others. And it's an essential part of my Christian life that I'm plugged into and involved with other believers. It hurts me spiritually if I'm not. So I need the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean I need the magisterium 
of the Catholic Church. That's a very different claim. You see, the body of Christ is this organic organism that consists of every believer in Jesus throughout the world and is often spoken of uh, in terms of the local representation of that, which is like a group of people who gather together and worship and, and are in fellowship together who are Christians. That's like the body of Christ. The body of Christ doesn't mean the, the Pope and these bishops that are in fellowship or agreement with him. That's not what Christ's church means. It doesn't mean this authority structure. It means the people. Um, that's the consistent use in the New Testament. All right. Let me talk to you about some reasons why I believe it. And I'm going to do the simple case. This is not, this is not ready for high-level academic debate. Okay, this is just the simple case uh, for sola scriptura. I'm even going to skip stuff that might seem real basic because when I thought about doing this video, I thought I want to do this for the person who doesn't know rather than for the person who's already studied all this stuff and they're just looking for the nuance. Uh, that's interesting to do, but I don't feel it'll help as many people. So here's some more simplistic stuff. All right, first off, the Bible itself is authoritative. Like if you're, we're, we're having an in-house discussion about where the, the, the authority for what we believe in how we live is as Christians, right? Christians amongst Christians asking this question. Well, all of us can agree that the Bible is authoritative, right? This is something you, you, you need to agree on. Like it's an unchristian view to, to not say that. I'm not going to sit and build a huge case for this because if I have to, we should be watching, you should be watching a different kind of video altogether. Um, when God speaks, it's authoritative. This is something I think we can all agree on. When God speaks, it's inherently authoritative because God is authoritative. And if scripture, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, is breathed out by God, it's, it's inspired of God, then it carries authority because of its connection to God. That's automatic. So scripture has this authority. And if you think that when God speaks, he doesn't have authority, you have a serious worldview malfunction going on that has nothing to do with sola scriptura. Um, and besides that, if God's not authoritative, well, then you certainly aren't authoritative. <laughs> like all authority disappears entirely from, from reality, if you think that. Um, at any rate, scripture's from God, so scripture has authority. And we can, we can rest in this. We can, we can take this. Now, I would, I would add to that, while Catholics would believe, would agree, Orthodox would agree, they would agree that scripture has this authority. Um, I would add something they would not. I would say, I know of no other authority that is equal to Scripture. I know of no other authority that's equal to Scripture. That would be the next statement I would make. And Scripture itself doesn't give us one. That is huge. The Bible does, it gives us itself as the authority. It affirms its own authority, that's for sure. It also doesn't give us affirmations about the authority of the Pope, nor does it even have the concept of a Pope in the, in the Scripture, Old or New Testament. Um, so I know of no other equal authority. And in scripture, here's an interesting trail you can follow in scripture. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read about um, if a new prophet shows up claiming to be speaking on behalf of God, that you can test his words in a couple ways. One is if his predictions come true. And there's another way to test it. And that is uh, when he speaks, does he speak according to the word they've already received? And so they can test the current claim of speaking for God based upon previous uh, confirmed information from God, right? Because God's previously confirmed word has more authority than the guy who's coming up and he's bringing something next. That's in Deuteronomy. Um, what we see with Jesus, we see Jesus even coming and he appeals to the Old Testament as, as um, the thing that he's fulfilling. So he doesn't come and bring some sort of new contrary teaching, but he comes in consistency with the previously revealed scripture. He also affirms the authority of the Old Testament. And then the apostles show up and they have the authority of Christ directly given to them to propagate this great message. And this, this can be kind of complicated, but I'll, I'll try to offer a brief, like simple evaluation of it, right? Jesus shows up and we see this concept of a mystery in the Gospels. He's communicating um, more privately to the, to the disciples, the apostles, more privately communicating to them more truths, more understanding. And then the, publicly to the crowd, it comes out in parables more frequently. After uh, he's going to die and rise again, he commissions the disciples. He's like, hey, you're going to go forward and the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance the things that I said to you. And all authority has been given to me. Now I'm telling you, go out and preach that message. So the authority of Christ, which is the authority of God, goes to them. In the preaching of the apostles, we have an authenticated message of God. Total authority right up here. Okay, now here's, um, here's another piece of the puzzle we can add into this. In fact, let me, let me bring up the scripture here for you. And we'll go to Jude verse 3. I'm actually skipping some of the typical passages people go to for sola scriptura because I think you already know them, a lot of you guys. 
So I'm bringing up some other thoughts that uh, I think are valuable. Look at what Jude 3 says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Two, two points I want to make in this, this Jude verse 3. One is that there is this thing called the faith, and I've done my own homework on this, and I recommend you do it too. Look up the word the faith with quotes, the and faith with a definite article, the, in front of it. Um, look that up and examine the usage of it in, in the Bible, in particular in the New Testament. And the phrase, the faith, you find out isn't speaking about the quality of a person believing. It's talking about a list of teachings. Not, not a literal list they had written down, right? But a, a group of teachings called the faith. These are the things that the early church believed and they were handed to them from the apostles. And these are called the faith. So these are doctrines. That's the point. The, the phrase, the faith is referring to doctrines, not just the act of believing, but it's the doctrines you're believing in. So we're to contend for the faith. We're to fight for the faith, for those doctrines. Then it says this, the second point is, that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that is a profound statement about the doctrines that we believe. They were once delivered, past tense, for all to the saints, like it was a done deal. It was, it was something that was going to happen. It did happen. It finished happening. And now our job is just to hold on to and fight for the faith that we had received. And that has been the job of the church ever since. Every Christian's job is to stick close to the revealed truths of God and not go beyond them because we're going to fight for that faith that we have once received, that we've already had delivered to us. And so those are the two points. The faith is the doctrines and it's already been delivered to us. Okay, that already speaks volumes in relation to the concept, the general concept of sola scriptura. That is to say, these, these teachings of the apostles, the only you know, perfect record we have of those things is in the Bible. So we have this, they're, they're inscripturated, they're written down. We have the faith written down for us. And now we must fight for it, the once and for all thing that was delivered. Um, so it's unchangeable. And I would say there's another passage that weighs in on this, I think, in a significant way. And I think it's often ignored um, in conversations on sola scriptura. And that is Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 9. Oh, and I should mention this. Um, I, some of you guys might know this. There, there's a, a Catholic gentleman who made a video uh, trying to refute my teaching on Galatians 1, this exact passage. Um, I'm not really responding to that. Um, he was, his, he just distorted my, my perspective. I would spend my whole time saying, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. And he was snarky and rude and mocking and, and arrogant and a bunch of other things that I just don't like responding to. So I'm I'm not interested in all that. But what I do want to do is I want to bring up Galatians 1 because it's related to this issue. So Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9 says, um, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, and this, just soak it up, soak up what this text is saying, right? And then we'll talk about how it relates to the concept of sola scriptura. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the, um, the idea is that the gospel goes out. And once the gospel's gone out, the gospel that, that Paul taught, that the, and he taught the same gospel as the apostles, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he delivered to them that which he also received, and he goes through it. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, faith in him for salvation. The long explication of all this is in Romans, where Paul says, here's my knowledge in the gospel, and he writes the book of Romans, and it's this careful, thought-out, boom, here's his gospel presentation in great, great detail. Um, but he says, once that message goes out, once that message goes out, Nobody has the authority to change it. Think about that for a second. Nobody has the authority to change it. This is a denial of other authorities. That's the idea. This, this is inherently that denial. In fact, Paul's really extreme with it because he says, even if it's me, Paul the apostle, commissioned and called by God, if I came back to you and I said something other than the gospel I had already given you, then you were to reject even what I'm saying. In fact, I'm to be anathema is the term in Greek, accursed to hell. That's the concept. So this is um, this is already huge, huge, and often overlooked in the discussion of sola scriptura. Paul the apostle says of himself that he is to be rejected. He doesn't have the authority to tell you 
Um, never mind what you heard before. Listen to what I'm telling you now. Similarly, Paul couldn't say, I'm, I'm in agreement with what I said before. I just have a new way of viewing it. Like he could try all this sort of liberal shimshammery, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where people try to pretend they're not disagreeing with, with scripture, but they, they are. Um, he could try all that, but no, no, the, the thing is he's asking his audience, don't listen to what I say next. Listen to what I said before, because if I can summarize, the message has more authority than the messenger, meaning the authority stays with the message, not with the office of the person giving it. So some later successor who says, I'm Paul's disciple, or I'm Peter's disciple, or Peter's successor. They don't have this carried on authority like the message does. What we need is the message of the apostles. What we don't need are modern representatives of apostles. That's what we're getting here in Galatians 1. I think that's pretty significant, and I think it's often, it's often missed. Um, so hypothetically, there are verified authorities like Paul or maybe an angel from heaven, a verified authority. Nope, not even them. The, the message is used to test and even reject those people, even if they have legitimate authoritative positions. That is the most strong rejection of extra, um, extra biblical authority that I can find. That's right there in Galatians 1. Because anybody who comes now who says, um, um, I'm going to bring a different message. Well, we have to compare it to the message received. Now, now, you know, I'll go ahead and mention this because uh, um, it's on my head. Um, even though I said I wasn't going to, but there we go. Um, the gentleman, I, I don't know his name, the guy's name, but the guy who did this video to, to try to refute me. Um, he came against my interpretation of Galatians 1 with the following logic. You might get a kick out of this. Um, we don't know what message Paul brought the Galatians and the message was only for the Galatians. So the Galatians were required to stick to the message and they had to reject anyone who brought a different gospel. But we don't know what Paul brought them, what message he brought the Galatians. Only the church, meaning the Catholic church in his opinion, can tell us what message Paul brought. And I'm like, have you, have you not read Galatians? Like in Galatians, he labors to make clear the message he brought them, you know, and in Romans, he gives us his gospel in even greater detail. And in scripture, we find out there's only one gospel. So whatever gospel Paul brought the Galatians is, of course, the same gospel that applies to every all people. And we do know what gospel he brought. It, this is just a really weird, silly line of reasoning. Um, but for instance, let me give an example from, from church history here. Um, um, in Roman Catholicism, um, they teach as a dogma something called the um, bodily assumption of Mary. And the idea with the bodily assumption of Mary is that after or around her death, because in some cases it's not clear whether they're saying she died or didn't die, but around her death, her body was taken up into heaven. And this is not only a teaching the church has, but this is the highest possible kind of teaching. It's called a dogma. This is a, a teaching in the church where they say, Hey, if you don't believe this, if you don't think that Mary's body was assumed into heaven, you're anathema. This is, this is one of those dogmas. This is the idea. You're accursed. Um, well, that's not in scripture and it's not really a historical thing the church believed. In fact, this dogma became a dogma in the 1950s, I believe it was, um, just very recently. Many of you who might be watching, some people watching now, you may have been al alive before this thing was even considered a dogma in the church. But this is obviously not the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. There's no way to tie this to the apostles or to the original teaching of, 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 um, of Paul or Peter or any of those guys. Um, so what they'll try to do is go to church history and find random church fathers to try to find quotes. But they're selective about how they quote these guys. So they end up being proof texts instead of text proving things. There's more I want to say on this. Um, let me take you to another passage that I think relates to this topic very interestingly. It's Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And I say this because I, I, I'm i not against Catholics in, in any way, shape, or form. Some are going to feel that, that way. As you hear me talking, you're going to feel that way. I'll say, you know, just listen to what I'm saying and, and think about it. Um, consider these things. Um, I'm, not, I'm not attacking you or your parents or your family who might be Catholic. I'm not against you at all. Um, I desire to stick close to the truth of God's word and not go beyond it. And when I look at scripture and evaluate modern day Catholicism, I, I think there's these really big differences that we should be recognizing. In fact, we, if we're going to honor Christ, I think we have to recognize them. Um, so here in Matthew 23, look at what Jesus does when he, um, 
when he talks about the, um, I'm trying to think of what order I should say this in. Let, let me give you here the Catholic understanding of what's called the chair of Peter. Uh, the chair of Peter is to say the authority of Peter. Peter has authority and that authority to rule and run the church and proclaim truths of God infallibly, that that's the Catholic claim. And that authority has gone person to person to person until it landed on the current Pope, Pope Francis, as I speak now. And that guy sits in the chair of Peter, uh, symbolically speaking. And on occasions where he's officially sitting in the chair of Peter with the authority of Peter, and he declares matters of faith and um, and Christian practice, he, he, he says, this is true, and it's about faith and Christian, pra Christian practice. He declares it. it. He has now officially declared something that every Christian in the universe has to believe because it's considered new, uh, a new dogma in that sense. Um, and they use this phrase, phrase, chair of Peter, chair of Peter, chair of Peter. Now, that's really significant, but here is a biblical reason why I reject it. Um, Matthew 23, 1. Then, the disciple, or then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses, on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. But, do not, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They sit on Moses' seat, that is the chair of Moses. Now, what was the chair of Moses? It's not, the, now there may be an actual physical chair that they found, like the stone chair thing about the teaching area where they would teach, um, but it was what it represented that mattered. What, what the chair of Moses represented was the authority of Moses. That's the idea that the law comes down and these are the guys that their job is to study and know and learn and then teach the law of Moses. So Jesus is like, hey, their job's to teach this thing, yeah. And they have the chair of Moses, the seat of Moses. And he goes, you know, so listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. And so you think, ah, this is perfect. This is like Catholicism. I, I can listen to the Pope. He's my authority, but I don't have to do what he does. Maybe he's a hypocrite and I don't have to follow what he does, but I have to listen to him. But there's more to it than that. Here, I just want to say the chair of Peter and seat of Moses are parallels. So how Jesus treats the Pharisees and scribes is a similar way in which we can treat anyone today claiming to sit in a similar chair. And here we go to Mark chapter 7, and this is where it gets interesting. Mark chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is what Jesus says of them, of the leaders even. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And it gets worse and says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus is constantly harping on them for one particular issue. That is that they would consistently add their traditions as though they were the word of God. Now, let me tell you a little bit of historical background that will help make this make more sense to you. The scribes and Pharisees, what they would teach was that they were holding on to traditions, specific traditions that were known to Moses. And that when Moses gave the law, he gave not only the physical written law, but he also gave what's called the oral Torah or the oral law. And that this oral law was handed down verbally for thousands of years until you know, here it is known to these guys, but they're not supposed to write it down. They're, they're told they're never supposed to write it down. But that way they, they had the written law and they had their oral law and they thought these things were equal in authority. And Jesus comes and he tears this whole concept to pieces. And he's like, no, you have the command of God and you have the traditions you're adding to it, pretending it's the command of God. This oral stuff that supposedly goes to Moses, you say you're in Moses' seat and you have knowledge of teachings from Moses. No, no. Here's the command of God. You should have paid attention to that. Now, how does this relate to, say, modern-day Roman Catholicism? Well, Roman Catholicism um, traditionally teaches, now there's some liberal, liberal Catholics who would not hold to this, it traditionally teaches, though, that every dogma and every doctrine of the church, it ultimately comes from the apostles, and that when the apostles taught, they gave us two different authorities. One, they gave their written word, which we have in the Bible, that authority, the written authority. Then they gave us an oral tradition, and the oral tradition was handed down, unwritten down for all these years, and they've held on to it, and so they can proclaim to us what the apostles said that we never heard before. That is exactly parallel to what the Pharisees said in Jesus' day. And Jesus' response to them is that this is a mistake and that they're ultimately rejecting the commands of God by establishing their their views. And I would say Roman Catholicism does this in their uh, 
the way they handle um, not not things like the doctrine of the Trinity or about what Scripture is or something like that, not who God is, but when they handled how salvation works, things like purgatory, things like um, indulgences, praying to saints, the existence of the papacy, which is nowhere in the Scriptures, um, th this kind of thing, you know, the position of the Pope, it just doesn't exist in the New Testament or in the first century for that matter. Um, so they're teaching as traditions the commandments of men. I think this is really significant. Let me, let's go to another passage, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, um, starting in verse 29. And again, I hope you guys are tracking with me. I, 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 in my head, like in my heart, I feel like I know there's someone watching and I'm like really frustrating you. Um, and it's not my intention. And it, nor is it my intention to get you to hate Catholicism or Catholics or something like that, because that's certainly not my position. My intention is to hold fast to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints and to contend earnestly for it. And I think that um, it says something that in Roman Catholicism, you can't really get the doctrines of Catholicism without needing a second authority beyond the scriptures. It's needed because you just won't get this stuff from the Bible alone. All right, Matthew 22, verse 29 says, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you... By the way, let me tell you the background. Sorry, I do this a lot to you. Uh, okay, the Sadducees come up and they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there's there's a, a life after death. And Jesus... They're Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees? The, these, are, these are guys that are in the authorities. They're authorities and legitimate authorities. But, but, he says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. These authorities didn't incline their ear to scriptures. They didn't let the Bible guide them truly. And they didn't, uh, they, they erred because of that. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is the significance of this? Jesus corrects them with scripture. He corrects authorities with scripture. He corrects proper authorities with scripture. He rebukes proper authorities for having traditions they're pretending are more than tradition, like stronger than mere tradition. Right? They're the authority of God that's equal to the scripture. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not the way it is. Um, this means if proper authorities can have claims that they have oral, you know, authority traditions and Jesus rejects it, then that means that Catch this, this is a big deal. Here's my big penny drop moment, right? That the Roman Catholic Church, even if they were right about the papacy, and even if they were truly the correct authorities of the church, they A, would not trump the Bible, and B, we would be accountable for rejecting things they say that are not in accordance with Scripture. I reject the authority of the Catholic Church, right? I, re I reject the position. I don't think that the, the chair of Peter is like a thing that exists in Rome. But... I would say even if it was true, I would still vet what the church teaches with the word of God, because that's what Jesus told the very people who were sitting in the seat of Moses to do, which is like the chair of Peter, which I think, I think I made my point, so we should move forward. Um, um, now, there's, uh, let me answer some objections. I'll anticipate some objections. Um, so one of them is in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. This is a passage that comes up. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Um, we're told to hold fast. Uh, we by application, right, are told to hold fast to the traditions. Um, so this is where um, you get the word tradition in the scripture. And I've, I've had people bring this verse to me and they say, ha, look, the Bible says hold fast to tradition. And the Roman Catholic Church is holding fast to the traditions. You're rejecting the traditions, Mike. By rejecting tradition, you're rejecting scripture. And I would just say, yes, it uses the word tradition, but this is what you call equivocation. Equivocation or anachronism. Maybe that's a different word we should use here. It's when you use the same word to mean two very different things. Because on Roman Catholicism, tradition means whatever selected beliefs we have that we've pulled from either church fathers or just papal declarations, which could be stuff that wasn't even known until the 1900s, you know. Um, that's what tradition means to them. Tradition in Paul's sense, he means not tradition like it's this category of content. No, no, no. He says traditions that you were taught by us. So it has to be an apostolic thing that came from them in the past tense. That's what, that's what the first, the, the people 
who are reading Second Thessalonians. That's what they were supposed to do. Hold fast to the things they were taught by them. That's it. And that's all I'm doing. The only record we have of what the apostles taught is in Scripture. That's the record. That's the only reliable record I've got. So to hold fast to the traditions, whether spoken or written, that's all in the text of Scripture. Some of it would have been spoken. Some of it, the stuff he spoke to them when he was, he was visiting them, would now be written in Romans when he writes out his gospel in great detail. Some of the stuff they'd be spoken as they orally shared the story of Jesus is now written down in the gospels, the four different accounts of the life of Christ. So yeah, that word tradition brings us back to Scripture. It, it, that's what it does if you walk it through thoughtfully. Um, certainly, there was no, no teaching from the apostles. There's no record of it, no historical reason to think that it was there about things like the bodily assumption of Mary or that Mary was born without sin. That's another one of the Marian dogmas, that she was born without sin. This just isn't found in the Bible, which is why you guys have to pick up on this. This is kind of a big tell. Um, many Catholics refuse to debate whether or not they can find these teachings in Scripture because they actually think it's wrong. It's wrong to think that Scripture, that you have to find their teachings in the Bible. It's wrong. And, if, and so they'll even rebuke people for debating it. Even debating, can you find the Marian dogmas in the Bible? They'll say, you, sh you shouldn't have to. It's wrong for you to ask me to. Well, I think this is kind of a tell that that's because it's just not in there in the first place. Um, let me go through a couple more objections, then we're going to hit your guys' cues, uh, your questions, and then we'll wrap up. Some respond to this by saying, Mike, the problem with your view is that you make yourself the authority. So now, here you are. You're reading the Bible. Mike, you're teaching the Bible. Here you are quoting it and telling people what it means. So you're therefore the authority. And now this, I understand. At first, I was so confused by this uh, uh, accusation. I'd heard this many times from uh, Catholics. And I was confused by it. I was like, what on earth makes them think? I have no authority. Why do they think I have authority? And I realized they were just thinking in Pope categories, you know, Pope and church categories, Catholic categories. And then when I said, I'm, I'm removing the Pope, they see me as placing myself in his position. And now I'm the authority on what scripture means. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, Pope, nope. Scripture, yes. Like the Bible is the authority that replaces the Pope. I have a responsibility to study and learn and teach the Bible rightly and accurately. But I don't have an authority in it. I'm not the authority on scripture. That's why I teach it and I give it to you and I ask you to think about it. And I ask you to hold yourself to scripture and not to what I say. This is hugely different. So, no, I'm not the authority. Scripture is the authority. That's that's the whole point. That's the whole point of sola scriptura. Some people think the canon of scripture um, uh, proves that we need tradition. So they say, ah, well, and this gets really complicated. Oh, it gets ridiculously complicated, overly complicated. Um, but what they'll say is something along the lines of, the Catholic Church gave you the Bible, Mike. You wouldn't even have a Bible if it wasn't for the Catholic Church. Therefore, you need church authority. And now I would say, even if even if they were right, then I only need it long enough for them to give me the Bible. And then they can go and get as weird as they want and they can't make stuff up in the future because I'm going to hold to scripture because that's what scripture says. But they're wrong. That's like not true. First off, real quick response. <laughs> Nothing like modern Roman Catholicism, modern Roman Catholicism was happening when we got our Bible, right? And that's first issue. Second issue, probably more importantly, I don't have my books of the Bible because of a church council. This is a huge misconception. People think the Council of Nicaea in the, four, in the 300s in the 4th century, that that was all about giving us what books of the Bible we would have. They didn't even vote on that, right? This was not about the books of the Bible. That's just total modern misinformation. Um, some would say, well, then the Council of Chalcedon, or they'll mention some other councils. But let's, let's evaluate this from, as a, from Catholic perspective for a second. In Catholicism, there's different kinds of councils. And only one of those councils creates what, what, what is binding dogma, you know, that everyone has to believe. Things that everyone in the world is required to believe. This makes it true for all Christians, right? There's only one kind of council, and that is an ecumenical council. And the first ecumenical council in history to even offer a list of books of the Bible, do you know how long ago that was? That was in the 1500s in response to the Reformation, and they did it to bring in the Apocrypha, some Old Testament books, um, or books into the Old Testament. That's when that happened. The 1500s, that's the first ecumenical council. Now, if you want to say that other councils are binding, well, then you're going to have a whole lot of headaches because there's a lot of uncatholic stuff that we can find in councils that are not ecumenical. So, yeah, that, that's, that was, sorry for if I lost anybody there, but that's a quick response to the whole council thing. Um, no, the, the reality is that 
the canon of scripture, the actual canon, meaning these are a group of books that are authoritative, they existed the second a book was written. When Genesis was written, there's one, right? When Exodus is written, there's two. Whether anyone receives it or not, whether anyone knows about it, it's already authoritative because it's from God. When the New Testament comes, we already have the whole Old Testament. So you can't tell me the Catholic Church gave me that, right? Because Jesus affirms the Old Testament, it's inspired scripture. Then in the New Testament, we have the Gospels themselves. There is no point in church history where the four Gospels weren't considered authoritative and inspired. It just doesn't happen. As soon as they're there, as soon as people are aware of them, they see them for what they are. The four Gospels, it's the easiest thing in the world to verify the scriptural nature of them without any church councils. Then we have things like the writings of Peter. And Peter, he tells us that Paul's writings are scripture. This is in the first century. Paul's writings already considered scripture without Roman Catholicism even existing. Um... Anyway, it just goes on and on like this. So the, the issue of the, of the people in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries was not, can we declare these books biblical, but was, what books has God already given us? We're just trying to recognize it. So we trust the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. We're not even needing to look to a, a group of men who voted on which books go into the Bible. That's just not how the actual history of it works. Um, not like men ever tried to do that, but that's not the reality of what happened. So there's a few responses to that. Um... Let me see. There's a couple more and then we'll go to your questions. Um, some people say, Mike, the result of your, your thing is that you're going to have you and your Bible under a tree. Um, that's, that's what I always would hear from the Catholic apologist side was, Mike, it's going to be Mike and his Bible under a tree and everyone else with their Bibles under trees learning things. And I say, no, um, we're not meaning to, to, to isolate ourselves or to invent or reinvent any doctrines. The whole agenda of sola scriptura is that we don't violate the scripture and we don't go beyond what God has revealed to us. We don't manipulate or distort or lose the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to us through the word of God. That's the whole agenda and goal that's going on there. Um, and, and so we want to push that forward. But sometimes the solution is we get under the Pope's tree. It's like everyone get your Bible and get under the Pope's tree. And that's all I'm saying is, wait a minute, why are we putting the Pope between me and the Bible? Why, why are we putting the Catholic Church, you know, official declarations of the Catholic Church between me and Scripture? And on a side note, Roman Catholicism, if it's their job to interpret the Bible as they claim, they claim they're the only ones that have the authority to do so. It's weird that they've only actually offered official interpretations of like a handful of passages in the whole Bible. Like, I think it's less than five in the whole Bible. And the ones they do interpret are usually to to try to prove that the Pope has authority. And to me, this is just, it's obvious. It's obvious what's happening here. There There isn't a concern, you know, historically speaking, with giving us, you know, in Roman Catholicism, with giving us the truth of Scripture. The concern is with affirming their own authority. And I think that seems pretty obvious. Um, some would say, um, Mike, the Bible can't interpret itself. So who's going to interpret it for you? You need an interpreter. Um, and therefore you need the Roman Catholic Church because an, an interpreter is necessary, necessary. And my response to that would be, well, then who interprets the interpreter, right? Because when the church says things, people sit there and debate. I mean, look at the, look at the Pope now. The Pope comes out, makes a statement, Pope Francis, and then it's in the news and the Vatican's trying to say this about it. And no one knows what, what is he even saying anymore? Uh, the Pope says some strange things. And, you know, so the church needs an interpreter too, I would argue. And the, um, the reality is you don't get away from needing interpretation. There's no solution to that problem. Um, what we need to do is be faithful to read things in context and look at them carefully. The buck stops somewhere and it stops with scripture. Um, others say there's too many denominations. Um, there's too many Christian denominations and denominations are a result of sola scriptura. And, you know, those in my camp would argue the opposite is true. That denominations happen because people add traditions onto the text of scripture or they just depart from scripture altogether. And then that creates more and more separate groups. But even within Roman Catholicism, it's not the, the singular unified group that often it is portrayed as. In Roman Catholicism, there are various sects and groups and different, different disagreeing groups within Roman Catholicism. But there's another problem. And that is Roman Catholicism never kicks heretics out. It just almost never happens. You'll have bishops who are functioning in, in Roman Catholicism that totally don't believe Roman Catholicism and actively teach against it. And they're still part of it. So that's not real unity. That's like a false kind of unity that's going on there. So yeah, that's a lot of stuff. I think the bottom line is God's word is authoritative. And here's where the Catholic agrees with me. I'm just saying 
the traditions and the arguments for bringing tradition in as an equal authority, they don't work. They don't work, and they're refuted by, I think, principles we get from Jesus and from uh, Scripture. So I do think the Bible affirms sola scriptura, though not in uh, those terms. So I'm going to go to your guys' questions, and we will finish up today with that. I have a lot of questions here. Okay, um, Alicia Huat says, uh, what would you say to hyper-charismatics who believe that sola scriptura is putting God in a box and thus limits what the Holy Spirit can do? Um, I would say they're wrong. Um, I would say they're playing with fire because it's if, if someone makes the claim that the Bible puts God in a box and limits what he can do, part of me would say, okay, it does, but it's the box God put him in. And you call what you call God being putting God in a box, I call believing that God tells the truth, right? So if God says, I do this, I don't do that, I will do this, I won't do that, you can call that me putting him in a box, but I'm just believing him that he will and won't do the things he says he will and won't do. This phrase of don't put God in a box is a modern phrase that um, sometimes I, I, I hear it and I go, oh, I like that. I think that, that I affirm that the way it's used in, in their context. Other times I hear it and I think that is just an excuse for heresy. So yeah, yeah. If you have a revelation that you think is from God, but it's not consistent with scripture, if it violates some truth of scripture, then it's not from God. And that is in scripture, right? If, if you know, in, in Deuteronomy, we read about these, these prophets, numbers, we read about these guys that, hey, if they bring a word that's not consistent with what you've already received, reject them. In Galatians, reject them. So biblically speaking, yeah. So reckless and... Yeah, reckless attitude there. Um, uh, Nye Lady in Red uh, says, While I believe in the authority of Scripture, I do not believe that the Bible has revealed all truth or reality to us. Now, I'm going to pause and say, I totally agree with you there, 100%. And that's not part of Sola Scriptura. Um, Whether animals have souls and will go to heaven, I maintain, that was an example, um, that just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that certain animals, such as pets of believers, are not in heaven. Is it theologically irresponsible to approach the truth of the Bible this way? Um, what would be irresponsible is to take it the next step and to say, because the Bible doesn't declare it, I therefore am going to believe it. Um, I would say if, if, if it's not clear in scripture, then you should be unclear about it. That's the safest thing to do. If you feel like the scripture doesn't speak clearly on an issue, then you can just be unclear about it. Or you can be willing to entertain various views as long as those views don't violate scripture in some other way. But what you don't want to say is the Bible doesn't say anything about this. So I'm just going to, you know, believe what I like. Um, I still want to have reasons for my beliefs. Devin nicely says, what are the essential elements of the gospel one must believe for salvation as opposed to secondary? I hear different things and it makes me wonder if I'm saved sometimes and kind of scares me. Uh, let me answer in, in a couple ways. I'll give a list and then I'm going to respond as to why maybe lists are sometimes um, cause us to miss something. So list of things that seem to be essential is, is that, um, that you're a sinner right? That you have sin, that you, you repent that, and I have a video on repentance. If you think I'm talking about sinless perfectionism, that's not it, but repent and you believe and you believe in, um, the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ. So Jesus death, his burial, his resurrection, essential elements. If you reject the resurrection, you're not Christian. You reject his death. You're not Christian. Like this is not an insult. This is just a description of what Christianity is. So you have these essentials about who Jesus is. He comes, he dies on the cross for you. He bears all of our sins. He rises again from the dead. And then your your um, repentance of sin, your faith in trust in Christ. That's like the essentials right there, man. Just turn and trust. But here's the problem with, with lists, while they're accurate, I think. Uh, the problem with a list is, um, notice Sola Scriptura is not on there. Like you don't have to believe that to be a Christian. It's just, it's just right. <laughs> it's just true. Um, but, uh, but the problem with lists is that when you come to faith in Christ, you're not coming to faith in a list. You're coming to faith in Christ. It's the person of Christ that you're believing. And the question is, are you truly trusting in Jesus Christ, you know, and in his work for you? Now, when we start to, you know, elaborate on what that work is and who he is, we get this list. But just remember, it's not just a list. It is also a person. It is who you're trusting. And that's really important to recognize that. Um, 4Z Mom says, what are some good sources to learn church history, specifically for junior high or high school ages? Oh, that's a, I, you know what? I don't really know what to recommend there. Um, maybe we could ask our audience, like if you guys have recommendations for junior high, especially, you know, or high school audience for learning church history, that would be something we would ask for you to put there. Something that represents like a, 
um, a non-twisted version where you're not trying to use church history for your own ends, but rather, yeah, just giving it to you. Um, from Heath Kaiser says, uh, hey, Pastor Mike, what are your thoughts on replacement theology? Uh, why do Calvinists tend to adopt this theology, which ultimately leads them to a metaphorical interpretation of Revelation? I don't know if I can comment on why Calvinists tend to adopt tend to adopt that theology. I could guess, but I don't want to guess at you because people take my words as, as more than a guess, even if I'm just guessing, it seems. So um, my I, I have a whole video on replacement theology. YouTube doesn't recommend it to people very often. <laughs> Anytime I do a video that has anything re even remotely related to Israel, it does not get recommended much. It just kind of gets buried. That's just an observation of mine. Um, but at any rate, I, I would say, you know, if you just type my name and the word replacement theology, you'll see a couple videos where I get into it in great detail. My thoughts on it are this, in short, is I reject replacement theology. I think God still has a prophetic plan for Israel and that he will fulfill those promises in some very um, literal fashion, you know, where with dwelling in the land and all the blessings that are still going to come. I also think Romans talks about a future revival where all Israel, me, meaning including those who are of genetic descent of Abraham, who have faith in Jesus, that, that many of them will, will come to Christ. And I think uh, Revelation seems to support that as well. Uh, Natalie Schoenborn says, Schoenborn says, Hi Mike, I've had some people I know tell me that they believe the scripture is mostly inspired by God, um, i.e. people wrote, but God's basic message is there. Any tips for how to address that? Um, I would want to push on the, by asking them more about what's not inspired or what was, yeah, what's not inspired, mostly inspired. So ask them for a great example of something that's totally inspired and for something that's not inspired, find out then what they're actually rejecting and then maybe try to push them on how do they reject that while accepting that? Like, what is their... What principles are they using by which they just they decide which parts of scripture are inspired and which are not? I think that's a really important question. Chances are they make up it as they make it up as they go along and they have things they want to believe, things they want to reject, and they just reject the things they don't want. Um, yeah, but I would push them with a lot of questions and just let them really flesh out what they think. Um, Connor Terrell says, hi, Mike, uh, what are your thoughts on the Roman Catholic notion that church tradition came before scripture and scripture can't stand without it? Um, that that's demonstrably false. Um, many of the things that Roman Catholics teach uh, aren't found in church history. They're, it's, they're clearly developed over time, progressively, slowly, hundreds of years, even thousands of years in some cases. So I think that's just demonstrably false. I, I, my thoughts are, I want them to demonstrate that, not just claim it. Um, nor, nor, do I, nor do I care. Because if, if these traditions existed before the scriptures, then why on earth were they not written down when Paul gives us the gospel message? When Luke writes all this stuff about Mary, why doesn't he tell us about, you know, all those other things too? Why don't we have people praying to the saints, you know, in the scripture? Why isn't there a discussion of the Pope? If, if these things were all that ancient, why aren't they there? Um, they were left out for a reason. So even if it did predate it, it wouldn't help. Uh, Tobias Sedneff says, uh, what is your view on an, on a apparent biblical scholarly view that the Torah was not written solely by Moses, but by several authors with different writing styles. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to have like a thorough view on this. My, my general thought is Moses wrote it. Um, I would, I would be open to the idea that, um, that there's, well, let me put it this way. There's clearly at the end of Deuteronomy, you know, where Moses dies, somebody else records this and we think it was probably Joshua. Um, so, but, but through the, throughout scripture, we have this continual reference to Moses as the author of these texts as the general author. It doesn't mean nobody else helped in some sense. That doesn't mean that. So I think if we don't have some substantial mosaic authorship in some sense, then we were diverging, it seems, from, from scripture. Now, some would try to find a really clever sense to have Moses the author, but it'd still be written much later. Um, and I haven't really listened to all their arguments, so I don't know how to respond. Um, let's see. Heath S. says, hello, Mike. What are your thoughts on the black Hebrew Israelites? Um, they seem like a dangerous cult group to me. And just so you guys listening know, these, these are not Jews in any stretch of the imagination. Um, black Hebrew Israelites is the name of the group, but they're a very particular kind of group. They're not Israelites and they're not Hebrew. Um, but yeah, no, they're a very dangerous group. Um, 
they're they're scary. They, they seem to thrive on the ideas of violence and threatening people and things like this. Um, not to mention their their claims are ri- ridiculously unbiblical. They've literally made up their own fake versions of the Hebrew language and stuff. It's just it's 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 almost like it works because it's so crazy. Um, that would be my thoughts on them. Sorry. Um, Casey Daisy says, I would like to know how to respond to Catholics who do not believe in sola scriptura. Um, well, you can respond to some of the arguments I've, I've presented, um, here today. You can present some of those scriptures. So show Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and their traditions show that the word tradition in the new Testament doesn't mean tradition in the Catholic sense. These are various things you can do. So hopefully this content I've done today will help. Um, Anna Boshir says, how do we know when to judge or rebuke our fellow believer and when to keep our mouths shut. There are always planks in our own eyes. Should So should we never judge? Um, well, we, we always want to try to have discernment. Um, I say here's a few quick thoughts for you, Anna. One is recognize where your discernment runs out. Just recognize where you can see things clearly and where you're just guessing. And when you feel your discernment run out, this is a wisdom thing. Maybe someone won't understand it. But when, you, when you're looking at a situation or person and here's the things you know about them, but then you start realizing there's a lot of things I don't know. And that's where your discernment's running out. So just don't go beyond what you actually know. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is this is, uh, here's the phrase I learned from myself years ago, which is discernment without wisdom is destructive. I've learned that through experience, right? Maybe I have discernment, maybe I'm totally right, but I didn't have the wisdom on what to do with that discernment. So my rule now, if I keep it, is to wait, wait after discernment, wait on wisdom. Okay, I, I see that clearly, but what's the wisdom on how I should handle it? And I pray and I wait on wisdom. So discernment without wisdom is destructive. That's like a, a nice way for me to remember um, to wait on wisdom and really think things through. Um, yeah. Another thing is to think about, you know, what are the consequences if I don't speak? What are the consequences if I do speak? How, how big of an issue is this? You know, because I can't rebuke every issue I see. Um, we, we can't fix everything that we see wrong with people. Um, and what kind of person does that make us if we even try? Um, so, yeah. Let's see. Um, we're kind of out of time here today, you guys. And there's a lot more questions. I see a lot more questions. Um, yeah, I think we'll just have to call it for for the night. Um, so we're going to start. Oh, I, oh, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. We're going to be doing the, the continued series on penal substitutionary atonement. That's continuing next week. And it will be, this series I think is really important. And I hope that you get involved. I hope you watch the series for your own sake. But next week's going to be Isaiah 53. And what does it say about the gospel message? Like, what is this telling us? And I'll try to deal with a bunch of objections and alternate interpretations as well. That's my agenda anyhow. And um, and yeah, I just thank you guys for joining me today. It's it's This has been the Tuesday live stream. And I'm Pastor Mike Winger. And I'm not the authority on the word of God. My job and my goal is to try to present to you, to the best of my ability, helps for you to understand and apply and know the truth of Scripture. But it's ultimately on you, on you, that you believe the right things about God. It's not on me or anybody else. You can't just pick a teacher and just believe everything they say. you got to pick the word and believe everything it says. That's the idea. So, um, yeah, Lord bless you guys. Have a great evening.